Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on a drizzly spring day here in the capital is David Bloom. David is the founder of David and Goliath Limited, a provider of advice, legal support and practical solutions for those struggling with debt. Um, David, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, David. Um, And I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room. And that's the fact that we are recording this while still in the grip of the COVID-19 situation. And that's certainly been the case over the course of the last 14 months as well. So to what extent has this whole pandemic affected you and your operations, would you say, just to begin? Well, uh, to be honest, Scott, it's made us uh, as busy as we've ever been. Um, It's been a combination of of our two client bases. The first is uh, consumers who are struggling with debt, and their position has obviously become worse uh, in in the course of the pandemic. And the second are clients of ours who are litigants in person uh, and who've been struggling with their businesses. So we've seen uh, across the board... Um, a huge amount of work where we've been endeavouring to support people through the course of the pandemic. And with some of these people, of course, going through some severe struggles during this time and the emphasis that we've placed on mental health during this period, have you found you've had to manage that very, very carefully with the people that you've worked with? Yes, it is clear to me that particularly some of our consumer clients um, have struggled with mental health uh, issues. Um, It's uh, particularly with those clients who were struggling before the pandemic. uh, You know, if you happen to be a consumer uh, where you're faced with bailiffs knocking on your door and with continuous calls from debt purchase companies harassing you for the, uh, the whole time, um, that's hard enough to bear in terms of, you know, having the resilience personally to cope with that. But if you add on to that uh, the difficulties that arise when you're isolated, when you lack community contact, it really has exacerbated that side of, of um people's mindsets and I think very directly affected their mental health. And of course, we've heard so much about how businesses have had to change the way that they operate and sort of work towards more flexible working models during this time. Have you found that the way that you interact with your clients has also had to change in the same way? Well, if you don't mind me being a contrarian, oddly enough, no. Um, We uh, tend to deal mostly with our clients remotely in any event and have for many years. Occasionally, I pop out and see them, but we have clients not only all over England, but actually all over the world. And um, uh, most of it is done from our office in in Marlborough in Wiltshire. Um, So uh, paradoxically, um, from a very narrow viewpoint of our business, um, it's actually been quite time efficient. For example, we're, we're frequently in court um, assisting and advising our clients where we have counsel on direct access basis. And instead of 
for example, if one is in court in London, having to go down to London for the entire day uh, and therefore losing a day of court as a result of uh, uh, being in court. Um, with the pandemic, uh, the courts have been very skillful in adapting to remote hearings. And that means that a one-hour hearing simply takes an hour of our time rather than a day of our time. So paradoxically, it's been more time efficient for us, but uh, I, I don't think one should be celebrating benefits of the pandemic. It's been so difficult for so many people, but this is a slight uh, silver lining on the cloud. So in a sense, you've almost been kind of trailblazers and being ahead of the curve in the remote working side of things. And it's now sort of accelerated everybody sort of towards that model of working, hasn't it, this whole situation? Yes, I think it has. And as we talk with clients, it's very interesting to see how this will develop going forward. I mean, the traditional model of having expensive office space in central London, for example, is being questioned by many of the larger businesses. And they're simply asking, why should we spend such a huge proportion of our earnings on this expensive office space when Either people can work from home uh, on a full-time basis or perhaps on a hybrid basis where they come into the office and hot desk two or three days a week. Um, I personally like the remote working model. Um, I uh, do occasionally go out and visit clients and see businesses in their context. And um, But in terms of work efficiency, uh, being able to get 10 things done in a day because I'm in the office is more efficient than spending the time traveling. Yes, absolutely. And that's certainly something in terms of not just time efficiency, but sustainability that's being looked at at the moment in the way that we work and do business in this country in future. And just because, of course, you have been sort of operating remotely for quite some time now, even before the pandemic hit, I was wondering just sort of how you find it kind of leading your own team almost from a distance sometimes when you're sort of working outside of the office. Do you find that quite easy? Sorry, I should be clear. When I say remotely, I actually work from an office in Marlborough, which is mm -hmm. literally 100 yards from my home. Um, what I mean by remotely is that most of the uh, interrelationship with clients is over the phone or more recently over Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams, however it be done. Um, so the remote part is the fact that it's done from an office rather than out visiting clients. That, that's different from other mm. businesses, I suspect. In terms of teams, um, people come in, uh, work from home, uh, and I have, uh, for example, one chap who's, uh, who, who lives six miles away, pops in every so often, and um, the rest is done remotely. So um, uh, it, it, it's a model that works um, uh, and I think should work for many people. And just reflecting on sort of the last 14 months as a whole, when I've spoken to a few business executives that have come onto the program, they've always said the same thing in that they feel the pandemic experiences really made them learn something and really made them stronger and taught them an awful lot about the team that works around them. Would you say that that's the same for you, that you've come away from this pandemic having learned something about yourself and those that you work with? I, I think you are a very foolish person if you don't learn from any business experience. So that's true of the pandemic as it is of any other circumstance with which one's faced. I think what we've learned from this pandemic is a few things. Um, firstly, and if I deal specifically with my area, which is uh, in part in the financial uh, sector, um, 
when I first started this business in 2009, the regulator was the Office of Fair Trading, which, if I'm really candid with you, was pretty hopeless. Um, that regulator changed in 2014 to the Financial Conduct Authority, and I've got to say, although they're very tough, I think they are doing an outstanding job and have done so in this pandemic. I've noticed it specifically in the way that creditors have been dealing with us and with our clients. The FCA has made it very clear that there has to be uh, compassion and understanding in the way that they deal with consumers who are in difficulty. They've enforced that. Uh, we get surveys conducted by the FCA uh, every couple of months to check that we have the financial wherewithal to fulfill our responsibilities. They're doing a terrific job on that. Um, the only thing, the only area in which I think the FCA could arguably improve is uh, in respect of its investigating specific complaints. They, they tend to not uh, help people with specific complaints, but I understand that. Um, so I think that area has been an interesting area. Um, there is another observation I have, and it, it's slightly narrow, but it might be helpful if uh, the country finds itself in a similar situation in years to come. The government brought in a series of measures um, through the course of last year. Among various ones was a, 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 an act called SEGA, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, and another called the Coronavirus Act, which sought to protect businesses through the course of this pandemic, mindful of the huge cash flow impact that the pandemic was having on them. I don't think the government went far enough with that, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, uh, let me give you some example. I have a number of businesses who are struggling to pay rent under their leases, and although uh, landlords are prohibited from forfeiting uh, properties until the end of a particular period, now runs to the 30th of June, it doesn't mean that uh, unscrupulous landlords have not tried to use other means to pressurize clients to paying rent when the government's trying to protect them. So I think that Coronavirus Act, which was protecting the tenants, should have had some uh, criminal penalties attached to it. Um, but generally, I think the government's done a reasonable job in protecting businesses. Mm, it's put an awful lot into the sort of mitigation measures, hasn't it, the government during this uh, period of time? And of course, they've had to very much learn on the spot going through this whole period. It certainly hasn't been an easy task managing the way through this crisis and managing the whole country. And just thinking about um, that idea for a moment, if you could say, David, go back to 2009 when you sort of first started your business, David and Goliath, as you say, um, would you do anything differently armed with that knowledge that you have now? Yes, I think you would do a lot more planning for contingencies. Um, I went through the crash of 2008. I was the CEO of a, a large financial services organization, a large, medium-sized one, um, which got hit with the 2008 uh, crash. Mm. And um, I kind of considered that once-in-a-lifetime event. And... As I built this company, I didn't give sufficient thought to contingencies for disasters. Um, one is obliged by the Financial Conduct Authority to have contingency plans and disaster relief plans. But I think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it, it is that we need to spend a lot more time planning for the unknown. 
Mm, I think that's absolutely right um, because the the unknown can come along at any one time. It is all good having those contingency plans in place, but you've got to be prepared for the eventuality to be able to use them. And this has been a real stark reminder to expect the unexpected, isn't it, I suppose? Yes. Um, and also just to, and it's just not just for businesses, <clears throat> if I'm honest, it, it does appear that the Government wasn't wholly prepared for this, and, mm-hmm. and I think um, with all its resources, government should be, but we as businesses should be as well. It's absolutely right, because government and business do work hand in hand, don't they? It's business that helps drive the economy, and business is going to play an incredibly important role over the year, the coming months, as we aim to build back better and use industry to make our way out of this whole situation as it were and thinking about what may be coming on the horizon David just before we do wrap up on the program because I am conscious that we are running short of time in your industry and for your business what are you expecting the next 12 months to hold and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over that period of time um I'm slightly um pessimistic about the next 12 months because I think that uh, although there's been a terrific job done on the vaccine, uh, I think this virus is a very clever virus. I expect it to continue to mutate in a way that will ultimately lead to it evading the vaccine. And I'm just not confident that the next 12 months will be a smooth recovery. I think we'll be two steps forward, one step back. And once we hit next winter, we'll see huge variants emerging in the virus and will probably be uh, less normal than people are expecting. So we should certainly be prepared, shouldn't we, for sort of not necessarily more restrictions, but more difficulty in regaining the traction in the economy that we're hoping for. I think that's certainly something business should be ready for. I think so. And until the whole world is vaccinated um, and you can suppress the potential for variants, then I don't think normality is going to return as we knew it before the pandemic. Certainly is going to be interesting times indeed, David. Um, I must say thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme. It's been a real eye-opener for myself, and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment. And I think as we start to see the next sort of months coming along and we start to see what sort of world that shape the world is taking, it would be great to have you back on the show with us just to see what is going on and maybe catch up on how things are getting on within the business as well. Terrific. It'd be my pleasure, Scott. Be a real pleasure for myself as well, David. Thank you ever so much again. Please do take care and stay safe as well with everything that is still going on. Thank you. Excellent. And next up on the programme, we'll be hearing from Chairman here at the Leaders' Council, the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, 
local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sakir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.